0: Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 Podcast. And here we are again, back under restrictions, no schools, no pubs, no travel and still the virus. So on today's podcast we are looking back to 2019 with three stories told at various live events and all involving adventures abroad. Just to remind us of what we had and will have again. I'm Paul Dorn and in the 2011, Podrigo Tuma and I started 10x9 in the Black Box in Belfast. It's very simple, 10x9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Oh, and we love it. Now, despite the pandemic, we haven't gone away, but we have migrated to Zoom for the foreseeable. You can find all our events and all the things you need to know about us and more at our website 10 9com Now, our first story on this podcast is from a 10 9 regular, Malachi O'Doherty. The theme was welcome and he told this in the black box in March 2019.
1: In January I went back to India after 40 years. I visited Delhi, Bridgegard, Kolkata and Sangal in the Punjab. But the most important part for me was Bridgegarth, the pilgrim town in the Ganges east of Delhi. When I asked my Delhi hotel to arrange a car, they seemed never to have heard of the place. Certainly never heard of a Western guest wanting to go there. He means Agra, the Taj Mahal. No, he wants to go to Haradwar. No, I said, I want to go to Bridge Gart. When I was there before, I lived in a pilgrim hostel and people around the town got to know me. And it was a little strange now to be walking about and have no one meet my eye. This place was familiar to me, but I was not familiar to Bridgeguard. This made me wary. Sometimes you can't tell if people are being unfriendly. They watched me, but they did not wave or approach me the way they used to. It felt to me as if they thought I shouldn't be there. Back then, people used to clamour around me, fire questions at me like, What is your qualification? Can you be my friend? Now no one was interested and I felt that I had lost something. The price you pay for moving on is that you give up an alternative life that you might have lived. Now guard where I used to dander peaceably through the streets or along the water's edge, is a bit larger, to- busier town. I thought it was not a very attractive town either, though it has public toilets now, Helen, <laughs> the, cre- the cremation industry has grown, if anyone's thinking of dying. A large section of the riverbank is taken up just with the storage of wood for the cremation fires, big banks of logs that were not there before. People travel there now in bigger numbers from Delhi and the surrounding towns of Harbour and Meerut to build bonfires over the bodies of their mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. You might see a sample of in there. Back then just a few people came to the Ganges to cremate their dead. And it was a sad thing to watch, though I spent four winters there. I had never gone up close to a cremation. I don't know why. The fires then were only occasional, not every day. I watched from the roof of the hostel. They attracted vultures too, for sometimes if a family was poor, they had not piled in on enough wood to totally incinerate the body. What remained was food, cooked food. The vultures just hover. A dozen of them might form a vertical helix or coil, perhaps actually borne on the heat from the fires themselves. Some bodies weren't burnt at all. The tradition was that they did not cremate dead children, but put them straight into the river, and the wailing of grief in that exposed, wind-blown place. Nor did they cremate holy men, revered sadhus, They put them straight into the water too, for the fishes and the birds. The Ganges is a goddess, People bathe in it when they are alive, most often at the time of the full moon, to wash their sins away. In India, cremation has always been a way of disposing of a body. They don't want to lure the dead into a furnace as it rose long. The family and friends of the dead stack the firewood over the body themselves and stand there and watch it burn. And just as at funerals and wakes here, after a time people just Turn and talk among themselves as the significance of what they're doing blends in with the ordinary life of an ordinary day. You've seen it yourself. You go into the wake house and you're hushed and reverential and you approach the body and you look down at the waxy face and say a wee prayer and ten minutes later you're in the kitchen having tea from the best china and laughing at some of these jokes or talking bloody politics again. In that sense, Death has no dominion, it does not defeat life. On a walk along the river, I saw about a dozen cremation fires at the water's edge. Bodies were burning beside the bustle of life, the boats taking pilgrims under the water, the bathers scrubbing off their sins, the picnic parties, the animal life, stray cows wandering about, monkeys trying to snatch food, dogs and other animals snuffling in the litter. This sacred place wasn't sterile, peaceful, separated from ordinary life. A priest might be praying over the body of a dead woman while children yelped, and others chatted among themselves, and this balding white man with a beard and a camera stood and watched. This was not a clean and tidy place. Scraps of cloth, old plastic litter, lay everywhere. You'd think if someone was coming here to burn their granny, they would tidy it up a bit the way granny would like it. They don't do that. My first photographs were discreet. I have a camera you don't have to lift to your eye so people don't know that you're photographing them. Beside each fire was a long cane pole, the poker. The tradition is that the son of the deceased pokes the ashes. This is to register an understanding that this is no longer a person. The soul has gone. Some say that the soul goes when the skull pops in the heat, and that that is the signal for the sun to poke the fire. I walked past some of the other fires and took more pictures. A dog basking in the heat of the embers, a cow eating the straw of the platter on which the body was carried shoulder high to this place. Another cow being fed from a discarded coffin. A man approached me to ask if I was photographing the cremation he was attending and I assumed he was warning me off. So like a card, I said no, afraid that he was angry and he accepted that though I could see that he doubted me. I think he was not expressing suspicion or disapproval after all. So the next day I came back, took more pictures of the cremations showing how the eldest son walks around the pyre with the flame before setting light to it. And I understood now that I was welcome in this place. So when I reached a new cremation, seeing that the body had just arrived, I went up to the family and asked if I could take photographs. And there it is. A woman was laid out in a yellow cloth, covering her face, but leaving her hands bare. I could see her bangles. You can see them too if you look. A man was spreading big handfuls of scented wood and flowers down her body over her face, down over her chest and stomach. The man I spoke to wanted to know who I was, where I was from, what I would do with the pictures. I was sure he was going to send me away and tell me to have more respect for the dead and grieving. No. He asked me if I would photograph him and the officiating Brahmin. All the time men were piling bundles of straw around and over the woman's body. Then they stacked logs around the straw. And I was missing good pictures, but I felt I had to oblige the man and the officiating Brahmin posed for me. I realized this was the picture that had to work. This was how I was paying for my access. It had to be in focus, at least, and sometimes when you're flustered or in a hurry, you get it wrong, and this is the picture. The man on the right is the son-in-law of the woman being cremated. His name is Ravi Ranjan Kumar, and he works at the Ministry of Urban Development, and he lives in Delhi. I had an email from him next morning asking for the pictures. I sent them to him. He's now my friend on Facebook. I don't know what he makes of the discussions there about Arlene Foster and Brexit. But I give good value out of meeting him.
0: Uh, thanks so much, Malachi. What an amazing trip. Now, if you want to keep up with all things 10 by 9 wherever you are in the world... Follow our social media feeds. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Also, we have a YouTube channel which features all our recent Zoom stories, so go check them out. And if you'd like to tell a story at 10x9, go along to the guidelines page on our website and get in touch. We are always looking for storytellers. Now, next up is Lydia Hodgins. Lydia took part in the 10x9 project supported by Belfast City Council on the theme, Belonging in Belfast. This was her first time at the Black Box Mic and it was a lovely July evening in 2019.
2: It was four weeks into my time in Detroit when I first heard Gunshot. Just off the phone to my boyfriend back in Belfast, I had picked up a book to read myself to sleep when I heard the four bangs. Detroit is consistently on the list for the top 50 most dangerous cities in the world, and I had been fairly nervous about coming to live there for three months on my own. When guns can be anywhere, loud bangs put you on edge, and America knows how to do loud, so I had been hearing gunshots all over the place since I arrived. Hammers being whacked, car boots slamming, lorries going over potholes, but this time those four bangs left little doubt in my mind. They were steady, clear, and crisp, over as suddenly as they had appeared. I didn't know what to do. They didn't sound so close as to be just outside the house, but they could have been on the street. Should I hide under the bed? Drop to the floor? I turned to Google and typed, how far away can gunshot be heard? That wasn't helpful. There were too many variants, like the type of gun and the clearing. New search. What to do if you hear gunfire? There were a whole series of WikiHow pages for dealing with gunfire, both outside and inside. How to deal with a shooting, how to deal with a shooter, all sorts of scenarios and situations. And the related articles at the bottom led on to more military-style how-tos, like how to march and how to salute. I checked the news. Nothing. I listened with strained ears for sirens or shouts outside. Nothing. Cursing Trump and wondering why am I here, I looked at flights home. After an hour of various Googling, I found you could listen to the police department's dispatch radio online, which eventually sent me to sleep. <laughs> I'd chosen to go to Detroit for a three-month research trip. I knew its reputation, and so did my friends, so as I was leaving and each person said bye to me like they were sending me to the grave, visibly concerned for my safety, it made me increasingly anxious about what I was going to find in Detroit. Some people tried to encourage me. Oh, sure, you're from Belfast. I'm a child of the 90s, and I didn't know much at all about gunshots. It seemed that even Detroiters were concerned about my safety. As I left US borders and customs, the passport police bid me to be careful. As I eventually came to learn, be careful and be safe, were standard goodbye phrases in Detroit, used like, take care. But when you're new to the place, these phrases sounded like warnings and only put me more on edge. I read the crime news religiously and then would check on Google Maps where the crimes had happened to make sure they were far enough away and I knew what areas to avoid. This didn't help much as shootings seemed spontaneous and indiscriminate. They could happen anywhere from random shootings on the motorway to home invasions and stray bullets in car parks. I quickly became fed up of reading about altercations that escalated in shops and resulted in a death. Detroit would lull you into relaxing slightly, create a false sense of safety, and then remind you where you were. After a lovely day strolling downtown, I came home to find there'd been a shooting one hour before I was at the Whole Foods store earlier on. Another time after a particularly positive meeting, I got on the bus, only to be warned by the driver to be careful at that bus stop, because there'd been a fight there yesterday. It was the tail end of winter when I arrived, but that meant it was still minus 10 degrees some days. From ground to sky was grey, and it made the city seem bleak, harsh, and empty. I wanted to blend in and keep a low profile, but I didn't have a car and everyone else drove everywhere, so I felt like it was just me and some, well, slightly quirkier characters rattling through the streets as the sole pedestrians. What's more, Detroit's population is over 80% African-American, so there was little chance to go unnoticed. I didn't even have to open my mouth for people to think I was a bit out of place. Firstly, I took the bus. Now, white people in the middle class do not take the bus in Detroit, and especially not white females. People who didn't take the bus seemed concerned and shocked, and people who did take the bus seemed surprised, but overall... I think it earned me a lot of respect from Detroiters, and I eventually got comfortable enough to doze off on journeys. Many times people would go to great lengths to hold the bus for me as I ran to catch it, even from quite a distance. One time a man got off the bus two stops early in an attempt to slow it down because he had seen me running for it. I was also the only white person who used the local swimming pool and leisure centre. It was $10 for the year and I couldn't fathom why anyone would go to a private gym when there was a 25 meter pool at this one. I felt like everyone at the leisure centre looked out for me. I got to know all the staff and the men who played pool, dominoes and cards better than I've ever known anyone at a leisure centre at home. I hadn't expected Detroit to be so friendly. People said hi in the street. At first, I thought this must be to ask for spare change or bum a cigarette, so I would only half-smile in response, hoping to cut off any impending conversation. But I soon understood that this city operated like a village. So I learned to divulge my life history to the cashier and to wave enthusiastically to neighbours all along the three blocks around my house like I'd lived there all my life and gone to school with them. With these little gestures, I came to relax into living in Detroit. Detroit. The warmer weather helped, as more people were about in the streets and on bikes. When the grass finally did turn green again, and it quickly became knee-high, and by the time I was leaving, it was waist-high. This gave Detroit a countryside feeling, and it made it seem unthreatening and carefree. By the third time I heard gunshot, I didn't even pause or look up from what I was doing. When I came back to Belfast, it was June, The run-up to Marching season. While I was in Detroit, my boyfriend had bought and moved us into a new house. The first house that we owned. Fresh off the plane, I excitedly went round all the rooms, taking them in. I faltered when in my direct eye line, there was a flag on a lamppost outside. From my front windows, I could see a flag, and from my back windows, I could see a flag. This clouded my excitement of being a homeowner in Belfast, but at the same time... I felt the contrast of how I'd felt in Detroit and how I felt in that moment. In Detroit, I had to start from scratch to understand the city, work out how to stay safe and fit in. In Belfast, I see the flags and I know why they are there and I know what they mean in relation to me. I now feel an uncomfortable sense of being home because I understand what's happening around me with the flags and the stacks of pallets. Here, I don't have to decipher what's left unsaid in the news and map out crimes. I barely register crime stopper vans cruising in the evening, and that leaves me with a strange sense of belonging in Belfast.
0: And what a wonderful story, Lydia. Thank you very much. And isn't it lovely to hear applause? Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We are really thankful to everyone who has donated. It's been really helpful. Thank you. One of the few positives from this period is that we've managed to hear from people who wouldn't normally be able to get to the black box. We've people joining us from the US, Canada, various parts of Britain and Ireland, the Netherlands, Austria, the Czech Republic and Iran. Anyone can take part by popping along to our Zoom events wherever you are in the world. Our third story in this podcast comes from the summer of 2019 again in the faraway, exotic town of Castle Wellen. It's a gorgeous place in County Down, about 30 miles from Belfast, but in reality, a world away. And we were there as part of the summer Festival in a beautiful old pub. The theme that evening was nature. Here's Nigel McKinney.
3: I thought we were going to die in a cave in Thailand. It was autumn 1998, and me and Sheila had went on a trip to Thailand. I'd been there the year before to visit my sister, and loved it. I wanted to show Sheila. It was exciting. We had a few days in Bangkok, then on one of the islands where I got attacked by a goat. But that's another story. And then we decided to go to Koh Sok National Park in the south. Koh Sok is an amazing place, a massive area of rainforest. It's on limestone, so there's amazing karst scenery, huge limestone cliffs and lakes. It's a haven for wildlife, rare plants and birds, and, rarely as well, elephants and tigers. We had traveled all day to get there. Boat, then bus, and finally a four-wheel drive along a red jungle road to to get to the place we had picked to stay, our jungle house. There's a local connection, and a connection even closer to our now home. The manager was a guy called Francis Rogers, from Belfast. And as we handed over our passports and signed his register, we got chatting about where we were from. When Sheila mentioned Castlewellan, he started talking about his father from Kilcoo and how he loved the place outside Castlewellan and how that's where he had wanted to be buried. Sheila's Sheila pricked up. Nalargi, She said that's it, said Francis. One day, some years earlier, a family had arrived at the house, our house, asking permission to scatter their father's ashes on Sleevnalargy. That was dutifully given by her father with the quip that it didn't matter, they were ending up on the Isle of Man anyway that on such a windy day. Our jungle house is a beautiful space. Houses on stilts, right beside the Sock River, and on the other side of the river, large limestone cliffs. The noises were incredible, the call of gibbons and birds in the early morning, and the tick and metronomic whirring of insects at night. On the first day we went on a trek, following marked trails on a map, much as visitors to Tullymore and Castlewell and Forest Parks do. And then we decided to do some organized stuff. Tubing down the river was great fun, going fishing with the locals in the river at night. But a cave trip was advertised in a shop in the local village, and we signed up the next day. This was before smartphones, little notice on the window. It was the rainy season, it was the autumn, and there were intermittent downpours. Nam Talu Cave, or the Bat Cave, is a 500-meter-long limestone cave in the middle of the park. We were up early the next day and went to the meeting place. Only four of us on the trip, me, Sheila, and two macho New Zealanders, and our guide, a young guy in his late teens. It was a beautiful day. First First a road trip of an hour to Cholan Lake, 185 square kilometres, a flooded valley. Then a boat trip on one of the famed long tail boats, like a canoe, but with a car engine mounted on the back, with a propeller on a long shaft. We had some food on a set of tourist bungalows set on a pontoon, and then set off on a trek through the jungle to the cave entrance, picking leeches off our legs with our thumbnails, as the guide advised. Being from Fermanagh, I had some familiarity with caves. We have the famous Marble Arch Show Caves. And in a previous job in an outdoor activity center, I'd been what you might call proper caving, in the White Father's Cave in Black Lion, also in the Marble Arch Geopark. And my experience there had included swimming through a river in in the cave in total darkness. From that, I knew how potentially dangerous caving was and some of the safety precautions that needed to be taken and the equipment needed. The entrance to the Nam Talu Cave was a massive limestone hole in the middle of the jungle, with a small river flowing through the cave entrance. As the two New Zealanders shared a joint before we we entered, I fleetingly looked at the guide, and a thought passed through my mind that he and we weren't very well equipped for going into a cave, dressed in shorts and flip-flops, and just carrying small torches. In we went anyway into the chasm, black dark, crunching along the riverbed, with him illuminating poisonous snakes and spiders on ledges along the side near the entrance. Bats, amazing limestone features all around. It was good. We were going to travel right through the cave, and trekked back to our starting point from the exit. I don't know how it happened, but I became conscious that, it would be, that we had been descending, that the passage on the river was getting narrower and deeper, and there was a lot of water with a strong force. It was then that I started to get a bit anxious. We were in a cave. It Was the rainy season? Any more water, we were in big trouble. It was also clear that there was no going back. We'd come quite a way, nearly the 500 meters, descended a lot. The force of the water was enough to need bracing against. It was a torrent. There was white water. Up ahead, the river veered right against a rock wall and flowed into some unknown space. The guide now made clear that we had to jump into the middle of the river and swim or be carried around the corner in the dark. I was terrified. I froze, I wanted to cry. I wanted it to be over right then. This was dangerous. We needed to get out. The thoughts in my mind, how stupid had we been to come on a caving trip in Thailand with no equipment? We were going to be drowned in the water, far away from home. I even started to think about the impact on our families. I'm known for my caution maybe overly so, but this was a time and a place where caution was totally justified. I went before Sheila. We're both good swimmers. I jumped down into the river and was carried in the darkness some dozens of meters around the corner into a pool in a cavern where I was swimming. I was scared for Sheila, and the next thing, her sandal came rushing past in the water. Followed then quickly by her and the others, we swam on and then were able to stand up and walk. The cave widened and with light coming in, it was clear we were near the entrance. Everyone was subdued. There was maybe some bravado from the two lads, but we had just had an experience no one was prepared for and one that even with a wee change in the water levels could have been, could have been worse, could have been fatal. The, I was so glad to emerge into like an emerald forest glade. It was beautiful a gorge with trees, a river strewn with moss-covered rocks just like the Clatter Glen in Fermanagh near the Marble Arch Caves where the, the Clatter River flows through an ancient ash woodland and there's also moss-covered limestone boulders. The leeches were back again and the guide pointed out areas where elephants had been. I wasn't too worried about that at all. Back on the boat and then on the back of a pickup truck back to our jungle house where we recounted our experience. Francis was concerned and had a chat with one of his staff, a former wildlife poacher now turned guide. It was too wet a day to go through the cave. The guide should have known, he said, it was dangerous. Flash floods happen. It becomes impossible to go back or forward. People get their heads banged on rocks or caught in on, on stones and everything. Thank God it was over and we got on with enjoying the rest of our holiday. Vowing to be more careful in future. The story has been recounted many times the Sleeve Nalargy connection, stone kiwis, the cave swimming leeches, the total carefree or careless attitude to the abilities of tourists and their safety. It wasn't until years later for me that the risks we had taken that day became fully apparent. In 2007 sitting at work a news story flashed up on my computer screen ten tourists and their guides died in the cave um, that day and there were other deaths before and since. Is there a moral? Well, would you go caving in Ireland with an inexperienced guide with no safety equipment? No. Don't think so. My pen rye As they say in Thailand, it's okay, it's cool. But it wasn't.
0: Thanks so much Nigel, it was so lovely to be in a pub. Hopefully we will be back at Soma before too long. And that is it from me for now. Check out the website 10x9.com and get in touch. We love hearing from you. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran. So it's all my fault. I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.